Mr. B. Hold it. Do it right. He made a caca on the bed. Don't breathe on me, Adrian. I'm terribly sorry, but there seems to be some sort of misunderstanding. I hope they don't hang you, precious, for that sweet neck. movies podcast i'm your host anthony king this show is all about our love for author critic and historian danny perry and his cult movies books we're going to discuss a movie from the first book then we're going to offer up pairing recommendations and joining me for episode number 31 are the hosts of movies from hell bradley jay cornish and dan Polin. hi fellas how you doing hello what's up anthony i'm great thank you for being here we uh you were kind enough to have me on uh, as part of your 26 movies from hell, I mm. got to do the letter D. Yes. And uh, despite all the uh, horrific technical difficulties on my end, I apologize for that. I had such a great time. And so yeah. that's why I wanted to have you guys back. Talk just a little bit about uh, your podcast for anyone listening to mine that hasn't heard yours yet. Well, we usually, uh, the way we do things on the show is Dan will do anything that requires sincerity uh so so all the all yeah so if uh so if i ever hand something off to dan it's because i i have i don't have a sincere bone in my body basically but uh yeah so uh the podcast has gone through a couple of reiterations iterations and uh, we start out as four brains one movie because we had four people talking about one movie now we have like uh, two people, maybe three people talking about a shitload of movies with uh, 26 <laughs> movies from hell. What we do is we go through the alphabet and we'll get together with our guests or guests and we'll go through a whole ton of cult movies, exploitation films, transgressive films, experimental films. And then we'll pick uh, four of them and then we'll put out a poll, find out which ones people like the most. And then technically we're supposed to talk about the one that one's pulled. But we usually end up getting pretty excited about everything and watching a whole bunch of movies. And Dan actually has been keeping track of yes. all the movies we watch on the show. And uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot. So we've done uh, 100 and <laughs> how many episodes now? 140? Yeah, we're up to like 141, 142. I got yeah. a couple, as they say in the podcasting business, in the can. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, so yeah, we've been compiling uh, everything that we've watched. Uh, you could find that uh, watch list from hell on uh, Letterboxd. And there's like 425 movies on there right now. All, like you said, all sorts of cult and weird foreign movies and, you know, fun stuff. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I appreciate uh, movies from hell because, like, when <clears throat> we first started talking, you know, we, 
talk about a lot of the same types of movies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are my favorite types of movies. And that's going to lead me right into this question here. Uh, Let's start with uh, Bradley. How do you define the term cult movie? Oh, man, we've we've talked about this on our show a little bit. And uh, I gave an example one day of somebody who's never heard of gremlins and they walk by and they see his sign and they like hey what is this gremlins all about and then they go in uh, to the movie theater they watch gremlins they're blown away and then they start telling all their friends how fucking awesome gremlins is and how weird it is and they got to go see it and everybody's like yeah but we've we've seen gremlins everybody's seen gremlins <laughs> you know but that is an example uh where i think it has to do with enthusiasm there's certain mm-hmm. movies where people watch them and they'll be like, oh, this is a great movie. And like sometimes cine- like cinephile movies, people will be like, oh, this is a great movie. The direction is great. The cinematography is great. The acting's fantastic. But there's not really like this almost like psychotic urge to have to tell everybody about it. Right. And uh, that's, <laughs> you know, one of one of the things that we do on our show is we try to find uh, movies that not everybody's heard about as well, mm. uh, which some people think that is maybe a definition of cult movie a little bit is like kind of a, a g- hidden gem type sort of sure. thing. That's, I wouldn't say that's necessarily the case. And I, I just got Danny Perry's book, the first book. Uh, yeah. And basically not it. I don't think you're necessarily recommending people to get it, but I'm so enthusiastic about your show. I wanted to get it so I can, I can uh, sort of uh, read along, I guess. Sure. And sure. Uh, but in in the book, I mean, he's got Maltese Falcon, and uh, you know, there's a whole lot of movies that aren't necessarily uh, typical cult films that you sure. might people mm-hmm. might think of when they think of a cult film. But then you think about it, and all those movies have like weirdo level enthusiasts. Right. Yeah. So it's really just like a unbridled enthusiasm. <laughs> how about that? That's no, that's, I, I love that. No, that's beautiful. I love it. How about you, Dan? How do you define cult movie? Um, my stock answer has always been, it's any movie that you can uh, play during a human sacrifice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, and you know, that's cause I, I deflect I, with humor. Um, but uh, our friend, Christopher Funderburg, uh, gotten to this on Twitter recently, and he uh, Christopher always has uh, things to say, and he had a lot of things to say about. He, he's uh, a genius fellow. <laughs> he is. Yeah. He, he really yeah. is. Um, but he, it's he was kind of saying that you know there is no more cult cinema because there's no more secrets, mm-hmm. um, like secret handshake. Uh, yes, type, right, type right, stuff. right. And I don't, I don't, I see, I see his point, and I, I like his point, but I don't know if I definitely agree with it. Because I think you disagree with a Thunderbird. Yeah, I I could. We unbelievable. Oh my god! Wait a minute. Hold on. Razorback. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Razorback. (laughs) Okay. I'm disagreeing with Thunderbird. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. (laughs) So. Oh, by the way, by the way, guess who my guest next week is. Uh, Christopher Funderburg. <laughs> it's Mr. Funderburg. Uh, fuck yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this this you know cult cinema thing a lot, and I I think it changes over time. And one of the things I was thinking about today is it's amazing when you think about it because cin- cinema 
as an art form is is technically in its infancy. You know, we sure. we talk about the history of cinema and and all this stuff. We're in the Baroque period. It's, you know, like <laughs> you know, we still have uh, you know to get to Mozart and Beethoven at some point, and our you know our children's children's children will be talking about films and filmmakers that we'll never see or imagine. Right. Right. And something like Scorsese or Eraserhead or uh, Star Wars might fall out of fashion. And, and you know, 150 years from now, uh, people are going to be talking about the, the renaissance of Jaws 3 or something. I don't, I don't know what it's going to be, okay? <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a wide open lane um, that, that, you know, can be walked here. I, I think cult cinema is always going to change. But uh, to Bradley's point, it, there's always going to be this rabid enthusiasm that people find for certain films. Probably Jaws three. Um, well, Cl- Clifford Clifford's <laughs> a great a great example. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That just well because we okay. So of course Marcus Penn is king of Clifford uh, Twitter, <laughs> yes. and and I mean he is he the invented cult of Clifford. Yeah, Clifford Twitter basically. Yeah. But but then that that Vulture article just came out, right? Yeah. Was that just like as of this recording, like yesterday, and I saw that pop up, and I was like, "Hold on a minute." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this has been around. Hello. Oh yeah. I immediately <laughs> yeah. I immediately uh, tweeted uh, the ownership of film uh, of uh, Clifford Twitter <laughs> belongs to the, the Pinland Empire and Marcus Pin. But uh, we we had. We had Marcus on, uh, and we did a one of my favorite all-time double features, Clean Shaven and Clifford, because yeah. they're they're both uh, uh, pin uh, Marcus pin favorites. But uh, Clifford is a perfect example of a cult movie because it, it came out as a regular movie, I guess, and it was like a studio release, and it was a Martin Short vehicle, it, and Dan. Charles Charles Grodin vehicle. Uh, Charles Grodin vehicle. You know, I love Charles Grodin. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but you know, eventually it just faded away, and then just a bunch of weirdos, you know, started uh, talking about it. And honestly, I wouldn't have watched the fucking movie if I didn't see Marcus Penn losing his shit all the time over Clifford. (laughs) You know, so I. we got him on the show. We watched it, and I loved it. You know, and yeah. it was, uh, you know, now I'm a Clifford Head, I guess you would call him. <laughs> you know, so that that's a perfect example of how a cult movie becomes a cult movie that wasn't necessarily born a cult movie, right? You know, yeah, no, I I, I think that's great. You know, there there is, you know, I think just enthusiasm for anything is great to see in people uh and so like you know i have two young boys and when they get excited about something i can't help but kind of feel that excitement and so when i see and you know you, you kind of get used to that with kids mm. but like when you see adults get excited about something you know especially something creative um something art related i think that's amazing because mm-hmm. uh you know we all know that art uh, some something that has been created can move you and can affect you in 
some way, whether emotionally or mentally or whatever. I, I just love seeing other people's enthusiasm for things that other people have created. You know, there's just something magical about that to me. And and that's Mm. what I love about this podcast and having, and I've said this before, but I like having the guests pick the movies uh, because I'm not forcing a movie on someone that, you know, maybe they don't like it, Mm. but they're going to be on the show and we have to talk about it. I want to talk about movies that the guests love. And, you know, I, when we get towards the end of the book and I, I've, I've joked about this on previous episodes, but like, you know, I, I, I can almost guarantee bedtime for Bonzo is going to be the final film. Nobody, nobody's like jumping at the gate to, uh, to hello? watch bedtime. Uh, oh, uh, you, you got your bedtime for Bonzo fan. Uh, yeah, yeah. Perfect. I will, I will be there. Last episode. I love it. That's perfect. Oh my God. Um, but Okay, so so again, that kind of leads into this impassioned plea almost from Bradley about doing. So we were talking about you know what movies want want to do, and uh, just like when we were doing uh, your show, it was throwing out a bunch of titles, and it and then Bradley, you kind of had this, like I said, impassioned plea about uh, the movie we're going to talk about. So why don't you introduce? what we're talking about this week. Well, we are talking about David Lynch's 1977 film, Eraserhead. Cult films on video, one of the strangest films in recent years, seems to be running strongly around the country, and its title is Eraserhead. This was the first work by David Lynch. He went on to make Elephant Man, Dune, and the controversial new film, Blue Velvet. Eraserhead is weirder than all three of those films put together. It takes place in a world that maybe looks a little like ours. It has things like steam radiators in it anyway. But apparently this is a different universe, a different world. And it stars John Nance as a frightened man who lives in that world of shadows and evil moments, threats and bizarre visions. To give you an idea of the film's style, here's the scene where he goes to his girlfriend's house for dinner. Do I just... uh... Just cut them up like regular chickens? Sure, just cut them up like regular chickens. There's something really unsettling about the way that tiny little chicken is still alive on the plate, but that's nothing compared to the central scenes in this movie, where the hero and his girlfriend give birth to some kind of lizard monster that cries for the rest of the film until the gruesome ending, after which it doesn't cry anymore. The best thing about Eraserhead is the way it creates an absolutely original, threatening universe. Nothing in this movie seems reassuring or familiar. But one note, by the way, because I watched it just in the last couple of days on video, the movie is shot in a lot of darkness and shadows, mm-hmm. and it's hard to see some of the details if you watch it on video, details that would be clear in a movie theater. Now, I didn't like the film when it came out. I still don't like it. Um, I'm trying to figure out what is the appeal of it. First of all, it's very confusing to follow, but I'm trying to think that uh, it is more of the college-age crowd that is embracing this mm-hmm. film, and maybe 
they feel so alienated by the world around them that all the threats that are involved in this guy are all the kind of subconscious and sometimes conscious threats mm -hmm. that they feel themselves. This, I mean, well, they, they, they don't identify with this guy as much as they I'll identify you, with what is coming at him. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Uh, this film reminds me of a film made 55 years ago called Lodge Door by right. Salvador Dali and Louis Bunuel, one of the great masterpieces mm -hmm. of surrealism. Both films have very disgusting images shot in a very crude way, in a very surrealistic way. Uh, and in the 60s, I think it might have been called a bad trip. Sometimes people want to go on one. It just makes them feel kind of creepy, and that's maybe what they're looking for. Okay. I like Eraserhead because it's a very personal movie for people who love it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's definitely like a mood movie. You know, so there's a lot to talk about as far as the product itself as opposed to necessarily a lot of like facts and information around it. But Eraserhead might be one of the few movies, Dan. And I, I always refer to Dan because he's we're, we're fucking co-hosts, man. So I'll do this. I'll start talking to Dan. But uh, one of the things that uh, I you know like about Eraserhead is it's one of the few movies that I actually know some shit about. You know, most, most of the movies, I, it's one of those movies where I can watch documentaries, read books about it, read articles, read the fucking Wikipedia page and found some mis mistakes, by the way. Oh, did you? Yes. And I, I actually found a, a couple of errors, but I'll forgive him because it was uh, published only three or four years after the movie was released. Oh. But I found some errors in Danny Perry's uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, thing, yeah. thing as well. Uh, but it was a contemporary film for him back then yep. when he wrote the yeah. when he wrote the book you know so but it's one of the few movies where i actually do know a little bit a uh, little bit about the history of it and it's also one of those movies where the filmmaking was and there's a lot of documentation about the experience of making that film hmm. and one of the things that uh, dan and i talk a lot about uh, uh directors who have like crews basically yep. or they they have like a gang <laughs> like, yeah, yeah yeah like uh we're going to be doing uh decades of waters on the show in september oh yeah with stephanie yeah. which is going to be beautiful i can't wait and uh so we're going to do john waters by decade do four shows but waters had his dreamlanders you know sadly a lot of them died <laughs> right. you know, early on in the process but uh i like movies that actually are kind of like a happening sure you know mm -hmm. as well and maybe that's one reason dan why i'm not super turned on by like hyper auteur in uh, type of directors even though lynch is considered uh an auteur i guess mm. but uh you know i see his work more as a happening uh than as just him like oh i'm a genius here's my fucking shit you know, sort yeah, of yeah. Thing. you know what I'm saying? Well, okay. Uh, Dan, do you remember the first time you saw this and, and your reaction to it? Yeah, the first time I saw it, this, this was actually the first purchase I ever made on eBay. Ooh. Nice. Yeah. And first film purchase. It doesn't no, include first... like the ladies' <laughs> underwear and stuff like that that you would... I have a specialty <laughs> store for that. Excellent. So, <laughs> so, you know, I heard about this thing eBay. And they're like, you can, you know, buy stuff. And everyone's like, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to buy a camera and stuff. I'm like, I'm going to buy movies that I can't find anywhere. 
Um, so I, I bought a VHS copy of Eraserhead because I, I believe at this point there was, there was nothing available. Like you, you couldn't, or I couldn't find it. I didn't, I didn't know the right. avenues to, to get it. Yeah. And this was a, uh, a Japanese subtitled. How long ago was it? This was in the early nineties, maybe. No, eBay. I don't know when eBay came. This is, let's say this was yeah, mid nineties. Yeah, yeah. mid nineties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it was a it was a Japanese subtitled copy of Eraserhead. Cool. And do you still have it? Yes, I do. Excellent. Yes. Nice. Yep. And I I bought it because I I it was one of those movies that I had heard about my my whole life. I, I, I've mentioned this uh, maybe to both of you, but my my, you know, my dad was like a oh that's right a, a, yeah on drugs a lot. <laughs> excellent <laughs> he like he graduated in uh, i wish my dad was on drugs so i just like i equate him with days confused because that was also right. the last day of school of 1976 so that was my dad right and you know he, everyone was on drugs uh but they used to go to all like the the midnight movies and stuff and like it was just kind of part of his vernacular to mention pink flamingos and eraser head and uh you know, all these weird movies that he, he saw when he was high. So as a six-year-old, like, I knew there was something called Eraserhead. I knew that it was weird. And I knew that someday I had to see it. And it was one of those things that through my teens and, you know, into my early 20s, I was kind of chasing. And like I said, I didn't find it till I was about 22-ish. So, you know, first viewing, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell to think. I was just like, ah, oh, that's, yeah, that's weird. It's pretty fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So let me, let me read a little thing from Danny here mm. uh, from his essay. He says, what you will discover when talking now, again, just like Bradley said, so the book is published. Cult movies is published in 1981. He writes this probably in 1980. Yeah. Early 81. Uh, so, like you said, this movie is, you know, new for him. Anyways, he says, What you will discover when talking to people who have seen Eraserhead is a reluctance on their part to either answer questions about the film or attempt to explain it. Few will fully endorse the film or say flat out that you shouldn't see it. What they all seem to say is, you'd better not be squeamish if you choose to see it. In fact, part of the mystique of Eraserhead is that it is a film that repulses many viewers. So I admit I had a bit of apprehension when I saw it during one of its midnight screenings in New York. Imagine that. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> yes. uh, afterwards, there was booing and clapping. One man hissed. Another shouted that he had seen a masterpiece. Opinion was divided down the middle, just as it has been with critics. Like you, Dan, I, I had heard of this movie, you know, uh, probably when I was maybe early teens mm -hmm. uh i knew the visual of of uh henry mm -hmm. you know that kind of that final shot the cover of the uh, criterion blu-ray and but i would never seen it until i think this year earlier this year oh wow okay because people do like to talk about this as opposed to maybe back in you know the early 80s like Danny was saying, but what they did say about it still didn't drive me to see it. So I asked my wife, Bobby, last night, I said, okay, I, I gotta, I'm gonna watch a movie tonight uh, for the podcast. What is it? It's called Eraserhead. And she, and she always goes, what's it about? And I was like, ah, uh, 
Um, 90 minutes. Boy. It's about <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. 127 minutes. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. She, so I kind of stumbled through as like, uh, he's, it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic thing. Uh, he's, he's out of work. He's on vacation. He, uh, just has a baby and it's a mutant. And then there's this lady in the heater with like a, a putty face. And she's like, uh, I'll pass. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I was like, that's how people fucking described it to me. Yeah. Right. And I was like, what? I don't, I don't know. I don't want to see this, but okay. So I watched it for the first time a few months ago and I was like, Jesus Christ, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. And I'm a David Lynch fan. Admittedly, it takes me more than one time to appreciate his movies. Mulholland Drive is one of my all-time favorite movies, but the first time I watched that in the theater, I was like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. Uh, which was my first Lynch, by the way. So I, I didn't know what the hell I'd watched the first time I watched Eraserhead and then uh, watched it last night, and I was like, oh, okay, it's fucking brilliant. Mm, okay. So, <laughs> nice. Thankfully, I was afraid I was going to come into the sepulchre being like, guys, what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> And I mean, still, what the fuck is this movie? Oh yeah, but I mean, what the fuck is I, this movie too? I I can appreciate the 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 brilliance behind it, mm. the genius, whatever scrambled type of genius that is. But, anyways, um, all right. Well, let's. How would you, Bradley, describe this if someone's like, um, okay, I want to sit down and watch Eraserhead, but tell me what it's about. How would you describe it? I would say it's, uh, I don't know if you're ever watching like a, a haunted house movie. And uh, one of the coolest parts in the haunted house movie is like the seance scene. Yeah. And they usually last like 10, 15 minutes. They're really long. Is uh, eraser head is like uh, taking that seance scene and stretching it out into ninety minutes. <laughs> yeah, and that's really the best description I can give of it. Where it's uh, it's fascinating and weird and creepy, and uh, you get unex unexpected stuff. Uh, and it's definitely a movie that's. And I thought I was thinking about it, like how many other movies are there like this? You know, where it's completely out of time. It's obviously, you know, post, I would say post 1934 or something like that, maybe based on like the lighting and the technology, sure. uh, they have electricity. Right. Um, but uh, besides that, there, uh, you know, maybe the, uh, the clothing is maybe 1940s, you know, a little bit, maybe a little more cut than 1940s, maybe 1950s. You know, sure. in the suits. So there's really nothing where you can pinpoint, uh, you know, the place of, and time that it is. And there's also really no planet you can put it on or no right. place that you can put it into. And even David Lynch's other movies, all of his other movies are uh, set either in a specific place, even Dune, you know, it's a specific place. Uh, but all those other movies are contemporary and uh you know with the exception of his uh of his early shorts shorts right you yeah. know so this is a really a uh, unique movie in the sense that it's completely out of time yeah and and it's also really slippery time-wise you know even within the, the context of the film itself you kind of don't really know sometimes if something's a dream 
like uh, when Henry wakes up and hit or goes to bed and his wife's in bed and then she's not in bed. Mm-hmm. And then the prostitute across the hall comes over and then they kiss each other and then uh, disappear into a bed full of milk. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, whatever, man. But it's like the, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, like I said, like a really good seance, you know, where you're just uh, enwrapped and interested and you really don't know why. And that's really, that's really the best kind of uh the description I can I can give of it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you know, a, a lot of times I ask people when you hear the term cult movie, what's a movie that comes to mind? And eight times out of ten, it's Rocky Horror, right? Mm-hmm. But for those that have seen Eraserhead, I think this, when you hear the term cult movie, it's got to conjure Eraserhead, sure. uh, you know, as well as a, a handful of other movies. But this is it's so indescribable undescribable and what i love listening to uh interviews with lynch you know he's famous about not wanting to explain his movies mm-hmm. right and on the criteria now i don't have the blu-ray but i have the the stream of the channel yeah and so i i watched uh the extras and he's got that <laughs> that super awkward interview <laughs> where the younger dude they're in oh the, yeah i love that they, yeah what what I don't, the pits or something yeah. they call it like where they're by these big yep. boilers or whatever yep. and like the the that poor kid is trying to get answers out of Lynch and and this was conducted back in the, like right the after 70s, it was right? Right. Yeah. yeah yeah and so like this poor kid he doesn't know he doesn't know David Lynch Lynch is just like you know the the kid's trying to get reactions out of him and he's reading these reviews and you know people are like revolting and you know all these hateful things. And Lynch is like, yeah, yeah, that could be. Yeah. But that's what I love about David Lynch is that, and I, you know, I think he's exactly right. Art should be open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. Whatever you see in that art as the viewer, that's what it fucking means. And, you know, I, I get so frustrated with people who like just are so persistent about finding the meaning of something. There has to be like one definitive answer to what, you know, this painting means or what this song means or what this movie means or whatever. Mm -hmm. Fuck. No, it doesn't. It means one thing to one person, the person that made it, but it can, they put it out for us to define. And I think that's, that's the job of an artist that once you create the thing, you let it go. You put it out into the world and it's not yours anymore. And I think David Lynch understands that he knows that that's the way it is. And so he makes these movies that come from his head, whatever the fuck they are. And then he just lets them go. Hmm. And for me, that's part of the brilliance of his movies. Yeah. Now I, can you imagine? So let me ask you this, uh, Dan, what was your first Lynch movie? Um, Ooh, it, I think oh, no, I think that'd be Dune. Okay. So Dune and then Elephant Man, then Blue Velvet. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Bradley? Uh, my t- technically my first Lynch movie was Eraserhead. I but I didn't know what I was watching at the time. I uh, when I was a kid, I was probably sixteen years old, and uh, lived uh, with my mom. Had my messy room. Had, had curtains always drawn watching weird movies and 
trying to find like scrambled porn on <laughs> on the UHF. Uh, back then, they would uh, you would buy a box that would scramble a UHF channel. And for you kids out there, UHF was a television uh, wave thing. Frequency, yeah. yeah, frequency, and the UHF channels were mostly like PBS, like weird cable shit, yep. you know, and like British films and things like that. But there was a Z channel, and I think a couple of others in the Z channel used to show uh, things with boobies in them. And you uh, cool California people, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So what I would do is I would. I would like you would adjust the fine tuning, get the uh, antenna just right, and the scrambling would just be like this, you know, instead <laughs> of like completely chaotic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you'd get sound, sometimes not. But I found a racer head and I kind of slightly descrambled it and it totally freaked me out. It felt like a, like a, I was watching, it was kind of like in the middle, like the baby scene, mm -hmm. you know, and you really couldn't tell what it was. You couldn't tell it was like this weird creature. It almost looked like a baby, you know, and uh, so I'm like thinking this is like some creepy, like underground snuff film, you know, so it, it, it but it completely freaked me out. So I didn't know what it, what it was. And, it, but and later on, I saw Dune in 1984. That was my mm -hmm. first. And I saw it on a big screen and I hated it. I hated like the immediate exposition and, uh, you know, it's confusing. And I've learned to love it over the years, you know, for its color palette and its weird effects and it, Lynch being like really daring with all the grotesque stuff and you know especially when aids was happening and like coming out with like uh, characters covered in pustules and stuff like that right. was yeah. really daring but um i saw that and then when blue velvet came out i heard a commercial on the radio for blue velvet and i'm like that sounds fascinating and then they said directed by david lynch and i'm like i'm not gonna see that fucking movie <laughs> you know yeah because i it was doing <clears throat> and then uh, I saw Blue Velvet, and Blue Velvet's one of those movies for me where from beginning to end, it feels like it was made for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Blue Velvet to this day is my favorite movie. And uh, uh, for a while there, Dead Ringers kind of took over when I was a, a Cronenberg, loving Cronenberg, but uh, it goes back to Blue Velvet. And uh, you know, but uh, after I saw Blue Velvet, I got into David Lynch, saw Wild at Heart after being up for three days and I was on acid. Don't ever do that. Uh, and uh, I did that with some friends. That was fucking crazy, man. That was the worst movie to see after being up for three days on acid. That's Not that I would encourage that. I, that's what I was going to do this weekend. So that's yeah, <laughs> do it. Uh, but anyways, uh, so so that is my David Lynch trajectory. And then after. I would say after Wild at Heart is when I saw Eraserhead. And then I was like, holy shit, that's a fucking movie I saw when I was a kid. <laughs> and uh, that totally freaked me out. And mm. it still freaked me out. Well, so what I was going to say is, well, my first Lynch was, um, I mean, technically Dune, uh, but I, I was sitting in like my babysitter's kitchen and it was on her little... <laughs> you know, 13 inch 
TVs, you know, on the counter in the corner. And, uh, but when I was in high school, I was starting to get into movies and, and my mom was like, oh, uh, you know, I was telling her, you know, I, I kind of like these weird movies. I think Pie had just come out. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was telling her about it and she's like, oh, you want a weird movie? And so she took me to our video store and rented Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. And so that was really my first kind of proper lynch where I sat and watched and understood it. And, and, uh, Bradley, I'm with you like blue velvet. There's something that I come to come back to all the time. And now that I'm talking about it, I feel like blue velvet is probably my favorite lynch, not Mulholland drive, but there's something comforting about it. And it might harken back to maybe that memory of with my mom. And, sure. But, uh, I mean, I've, I love Blue Velvet, and next to, say, something like Mulholland Drive or Eraserhead, it's, like, the most straightforward movie ever. It's just kind of uh, kooky, right? Mm. So, anyway, so my introduction to Lynch was something more straightforward. Now, imagine 1970, when does this come out? 77? Yep. You go to a midnight screening, and you watch this, Eraserhead. David Lynch, this is his first feature uh, nobody's walking in with like preconceived uh, notions about who this guy is, what type of shit he creates. And you sit down and it opens with sort of like the, you know, the uh, like space and then Henry's face overlaid over that to the side. And then we cut to this whatever. Is it a planet? Is it a pustule something <laughs> Whatever it is, it's a really fucking cool model mm. that they created for that, right? Like that w- planet or whatever the fuck that is. And and then we see the guy, again, covered in lesions or something, right. yep. sitting in this little thing, looking out the window, and he's he's like pulling levers as you got what, you know, you don't know. But it, I can just imagine sitting in the theater at midnight and this is unfolding in front of me for the very first time and you're like what the fuck (laughs) is this yeah right the other thing i think uh and it was something was it one of the clips yeah you sent bradley about uh who was the sound editor the designer uh Uh, split alan 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 split how uh, David was talking, Lynch was talking about how sound makes up like is 50% of your film. And so watching this for the second time last night, that really stood out to me. Yeah. And I was like, I kind of want to rip this like just the audio and use this for like ASMR putting me to sleep <laughs> at night. Cause all those sounds uh, is so hypnotic and so just imagine you're watching this, whatever these images are flashing in front of you on this screen, you know, in 1977, it's the middle of the night, and then you have this onslaught of sounds coming at you uh, would just be, I, I, I don't know. what. As I think it, it sounds a big, it is really a big part of the movie going experience for me. Uh, when we had uh, Lisey Trouble Russell, uh, Ken Russell's wife on the show, uh, doing our uh, Ken Russell series, I talked a lot about my summer of Tommy. When I went to go see, I was it, it was a few years after it was released, and they added showing all the time. They would do this in the seventies. They would take movies uh, that people liked to go see, and then they would just play them for years. After, on right. uh, you know, yep. they might do it on a weekend or at night sometime, 
But uh, Tommy, uh, they did in this giant uh, theater with quadra. It was, I found out later, is one of the few theaters that had the quadra, uh, I forgot what they call it. Quadraphonic? Quad yeah, it wasn't, uh, they didn't call it quadraphonic, but it was quadraphonic. Okay. But uh, yeah, so, and it's like, Tommy isn't my favorite Ken Russell movie. It's a really fun movie. But I think the reason why I went to it was like an ASMR, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, just getting getting that experience, you know. And there's some other movies, too, that are kind of like that, like uh, uh, Mishima, uh, Life in Four Chapters, you know, mm -hmm. has has that uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful soundtrack to it. And sometimes I'll watch that and space out on it. And it's sure. like, uh, and I didn't even stay up for three days to take acid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, uh, that soundtrack, uh, there's something kind of hypnotic about it. So I can imagine what a freaky experience that would have been going in that, uh, going into a razor head cold. Yeah. So l let me ask you guys this. You each have seen Eraserhead multiple times. What is your is is there a theme that you kind of take away from this? Yeah, um, Dan, go ahead. So, uh, I, I, I see the the thing about the like you know Lynch says you can interpret this stuff any way you want, right? Um, and I formed a very specific interpretation of Eraserhead, and it it sort of informed some of my future uh, David Lynch viewings. I see, it's like Bradley was saying, like you don't know what world it's in, you don't know the time and anything. I don't think it is an actual physical world. Right. Um, I think the movie is like a manifestation of a psychological state mm. um, and like an emotional state. Sure. And I think it, to me, it has to do with the uh, uh, grief and regret uh, that you might feel after an abortion. A lot of people have interpreted it as, as uh, Lynch's fear of fatherhood. Um, mm -hmm. You know, his, his daughter, Jennifer, was uh, born with severe clubfoot. But there's something about that that I don't like because I, I don't know if, like, he would be like, oh, my daughter's a mutant. I'm going to make a mutant movie. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's put the kid in it. It's like, yeah. that's not cool. You got to make, a, <laughs> um, make a puppet or something instead. Don't use a real kid. <laughs> so yeah, for me, every, everything in this movie is, is symbolic about a, a fear you might have or a, a feeling the baby being like this thing that it isn't real, but it, it's, it, it is real in some ways, you know, um, I think a lot of times abortion in, in films is, is almost uh, flippant as far as the gravity, you know, sure. about it. You know, the guy, I, I had an abortion, whatever. Um, but, you know, that's a, it's a tough decision to make, right? And it's something that would linger with you. And, and so the way I, I view this movie is that lingering feeling, you know, that, that you would have and the thoughts and, you know, regrets and emotions that you would have after you've made a decision like that so sure that's yeah there's an abortion scene actually in wild at heart with Lord mm -hmm. oh man it's really effective it, yeah yeah and like i i view lost highway the same way so you know lost highway right. again it's, it's this kind of confusing slippery thing 
Um, I, be I believe that one is the psychological state of someone who has killed their wife and the wife's right. lover, right? Yeah. And so you're not seeing things that are actual narrative reality. You are seeing representations of, uh, like in that one, it's, you know, you're seeing a representation of the denial, the, the disembodiment, you know, that you might go through when you've, you've committed a heinous act like that. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, what was, what was the, uh, hereditary, you know, after he, he, the sister's head gets knocked off, the kid just like drives home and goes to bed. Right. And that's weird, but you're, you're, that kid is, is totally like removed himself from reality. And that's where something like lost highway is. I, I think you're seeing the psychological state of someone who has removed themselves from reality and is slowly dealing with the the their actions and the uh, results of their actions. What about you, Bradley? Is there uh, any like main themes that you take away from Eraserhead? I'm still trying to figure this shit out, you know. And uh, after all the times that I've seen it, sometimes I'll watch it just to enjoy it. But since we're doing a fancy podcast, <laughs> uh, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna try to figure something out here and see if, see if I can get it. And, <laughs> and actually it's almost like a challenge that Lynch puts out there, you know, mm. cause he won't tell people what it's about. And he, and I heard an interview and he's like, people have been trying to figure this out for a long time. That's my Lynch impersonation. And, <laughs> pretty good, pretty uh, good. and, uh, and, uh, nobody's even come close. He said, Huh. And uh, so I was like, fuck you, David Lynch. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to figure this shit out. So the closest thing that I can, that I figured out from his last viewing was it's a uh, Bardo. It is a, uh, you know, it's a place in between worlds. Uh, but Bardo like, is more of a Buddhist idea where okay. uh, people go into this place and they actually, uh, they have people that will sit with a person who went through the death process and they'll sit with them for like three or four days after they died, guiding them. Uh, so they don't get distracted by things and they stay focused so they oh. can, so they can uh, move through the Bardo and get to a, a better, uh, get to a good reincarnation. Sure. So if you if you're watching Eraserhead, you see him uh, being put in different situations, kind of being tempted, you know, in some cases, mm -hmm. you know, I think his act of killing uh, the Eraserhead baby. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> so the act of uh, killing the Eraserhead ba baby was. I think it was him releasing himself from mm. uh, from the burden of uh, you know maybe uh, being like a a broken person sure you know who's uh, going through life fucking miserable and just taking care of screaming babies and crazy wives and you know all that other stuff I think he was saying no I'm not going to do this. Fuck this baby. Fuck this weirdo stuff going on, you know, and then, you know, him getting through that almost like going through those different little challenges 
uh, he might be born uh, something more pleasant. Maybe yeah. a guy with like a better head of hair. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, as as a, a bald man, I'm jealous of that head of hair myself. It's a fine head uh, of hair. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, yeah, you know, I I mean, listen, I've I've seen Eraser two times, so mm. uh, my take isn't going to mean much. But I, I'm kind of with you, Bradley, in, in that I see Henry trying to break through his mundane life. Mm-hmm. You know, are, are we are we really meant for just going to work? and fucking and making kids and then dying. I like the fucking part. That's fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, the fucking is, yeah, lots of fun. Pretty good. Uh, it's hilarious sometimes. And, and <laughs> Sorry. I, I also I also love my, my children, by the way. Yes. But, <laughs> uh, Me too. I love my one child. Even the mutant um, ones. I, I love my mutant <laughs> Oh, whoa. <laughs> No, fuck that mutant child. I'm sorry. It's some sort of, I I, I feel like fear. And like when he, I mean, it's God, the, 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 uh, the effects, the practical effects. And like, like I said, the models and the miniatures and the puppets are just breathtaking. They're incredible and super fucking gross. And so like he, you know, he splits the baby open and it releases all this disgusting goo and like sometimes I feel like that not to get all, you know, existential or whatever, but like, you know, we all have lots of goo in our <laughs> lives. Right. And we have to like fight through that shit. And like, like I was just saying before we uh, started recording, like I said, we're going to church and I worked there for almost a decade. And although I loved, you know, the, the kids that I worked with, uh, I didn't love the bullshit that came with like being working in a church yeah. and like, you know, I mean, typical office atmosphere yeah Yeah. and like you know in everything that comes with you know uh, organized religion but i was like you know what uh this is not working out for me and i was a chef for 10 years before that and i my body just like i couldn't do that anymore my body wouldn't allow me to do that anymore right and i was like and i didn't go to school and i was like what i don't know how the fuck to do anything that I'm so, going to start a podcast. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. And I, you know, my wife was like, you know, we, you don't have to work. We can, we can make this work. Uh, bless her heart. Cause she's super smart and, you know, right. can, can feed, <laughs> feed our family. And I, I was like, it, it was sort of that breakthrough moment. I remember that evening having that conversation with her where we went to bed knowing that the next morning I was going to fucking quit my job yeah, and like terrifying, so terrifying, but also that, that sort of relief right? that, that, and wonderment that, uh, Jack Nance, I mean, Jesus God, he is so fucking brilliant in everything, but especially this movie, oh, yeah. but that, you know, that famous shot of him, like with the, I don't know, dust or whatever, those floaties around him, just kind of like looking pencil, that's in, a pencil eraser, uh, uh, leftovers. Yeah. Oh, is that what yeah. it is? Oh, cool. Okay, the shavings. Yeah. So, like, he's just kind of looking in wonderment, and he's a little scared, and and I I feel like that's sort of how David Lynch is, mm-hmm. uh, because like when you watch interviews with him, he's he's like worried and scared and sad, but like also super excited and happy and like amazed at the exact same time. Yeah. And so I think Jack Nance portrays that super well in. Eraserhead. And so when I went into work that next morning at the church, I was like, 
<sighs> like this, this and he sort of like, like found the closest baby and cut it open. And he's like, just like <laughs> a like, razor head. Exactly. <laughs> Fuck you, child. And snipped them open, and like all this goo came out, and, awesome. and they fired me. It so whatever. Everybody out. out. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about Jack Nance for a second. I'm a little embarrassed to say it took me wait like a week before I watched this for the second time. So like last week, that oh, this is the same dude. <laughs> from Twin Peaks. Right. I'm, I'm very embarrassed to mention, to admit that. but He does look quite different, though. So yes. you, you you do get some points. Much younger, uh, you know, no mustache. Right. The hair. But, I mean, the guy is, like I said, just absolutely brilliant in this. Oh, yeah. He, uh, and his, it, if you uh, watch uh, Jack Nance, if you watch his interviews, and especially uh, the interview, uh, he did this interview, and I might have, I don't know if I shared it with you guys. Dan, I think I chose not to share it because it was so depressing. Uh, but the, uh, <laughs> but he did a, uh, there's a TV show called Current Affair where yeah. they do mm. true crime things. And they did a current affair on uh, his wife, uh, uh, Kelly Van Dyke, which is uh, J- Jerry Van Dyke's daughter. Uh, he is married to Jerry Van Jerry Van Dyke's daughter and uh, Kelly, Kelly Van Dyke. uh, There's something going on in the family. Uh, It was probably bad stuff, but she was like, uh, like her whole life kind of like fighting the image of being like the daughter of a movie star. Uh, And uh, uh, so she uh, was doing things that directly to like hurt her family reputation and she was doing porn and uh, Jack Nance was uh, married to her during this time. Mm. And uh, she ended up uh, committing suicide. Oh, Jesus. And uh, Jack Nance is on the phone with her uh, when when she did that. Oh. And then, uh, yeah, if, so if you watch this uh, current affair thing, uh, he's talking about uh, his wife killing herself. And his eyes are tearing up. Yeah. And uh, but that same level of emotion in uh, his roles, you know, he's bringing that. And so yeah. he's like one of those dudes who has it like right on the surface, okay. you know, all the time and who's really not afraid to share it. But to, and yeah, to go there. But yeah. if you ever want to get super fucking depressed, uh, read about uh, <laughs> Kelly Van Dyke and Jack Nance. When, when was this? Uh, this was uh, in 19, uh, this was in around 90, uh, 90-ish. And uh, actually she, there's- She died in 1991. Yeah, and there's a, there's actually a Twitter friend who uh, knew them and had uh, had a meal with them around that time. And was, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, whenever I bring up, uh, Jack Nance, he's always like, hey, and he forgets that sometimes he, he like he forgot that he told me about the story before. <laughs> uh, but, you know, probably because like who remembers like a stupid little side conversation on Twitter sometimes. But I remembered that story uh, mm. because his life was pretty, pretty sad. Like, I think he drank a lot and he ended up uh, dying from uh, after he got in a fight. I think in front of a fucking Winchell's or something like that. Like uh, he was like mouthing off to some kids. He got beat up, went home, 
and like died of internal bleeding or a brain hemorrhage or something like that. So yeah, so there you go. That's an exciting, fun, happy story to share with you guys. But with uh, Jack Nance though, you know, I think David Lynch saw something in him and he, you know, there's uh, Jack Nance, which is like kind of like the sad, you know, there's like a sadness there yeah. and uh, suffering, I guess. Sure. As opposed to uh, Kyle McLaughlin, who's maybe an aspect of Lynch. And he says that he's not, admit that these aren't like oh, his doppelgangers yeah. or aspects of him, but they're obvious. You know, that they are parts of his personality. And, uh, but Kyle McLaughlin is kind of a more of an innocent. And, uh, but then on the other hand, you got uh, people like Frank Booth, who are, I think, also kind of aspects of Lynch. You know, for him uh, and uh, some of the more evil characters and in Wild at Heart and Twin Peaks, like, you know, Laura's dad. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. I, where does he come up with these fucking uh, just uh, insanely awful characters? Right. You know, not just like, like, oh, look at, you know, like, uh, what's the uh, the movie with the guy with the with the fucking razor fingers that uh, Edward Scissorhands? No, not that one. No, 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 the bad guy, Freddy, Freddy, Freddy Krueger, the yeah. night, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> so it's not like uh, let's uh, come up with you know something that is like a scary thing, right? Uh, his uh, his bad guys are just uh, psychically fucked because they're fucking real. Because you yeah. believe yeah. Frank Booth, one portrayed by Dennis Hopper. Uh, you know, you guys right. are gonna have to come back when we do Blue Velvet because that's in book three. <laughs> right. Anyways, but yeah, portrayed by Dennis Hopper. But but like, we've all not necessarily known, but have seen a Frank Booth. Whether you know it's just sitting in a bar or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that's terrifying. Um, but you know, I, there's something about, so I, I, uh, used to play music professionally and, uh, this piano player that I played with, I'm not going to say his name just in case he might be listening, but, uh, really reminds me of Henry in this, right. Is that Jack Nance's character? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Henry, because, uh, this guy in real life always wore the black, sport coat right and the white white shirt and the black tie and like you know how the film after the super weird opening henry you know walks through the tunnel and then he walks through the the pits and and does that kind of cute little thing where he's walking over the mounds you know yeah mm-hmm. but he's sort of wandering it seems aimlessly but he he has a direction anyways this guy that i used to play with would do shit like that and it would scare me sometimes because like you, you didn't know where he his head was you know right but he was the greatest piano player i've ever played with so whatever mm. i would mm. never you know go out and hang out with this guy because <laughs> i believe he could actually murder someone yes yeah, sti- anyway. statistically uh piano players uh do uh, murder a lot of people <laughs> it's true yeah it's true but you know there there's i mean jack nance does just a remarkable thing here's something that blew my mind last night i was uh i had to look up on imdb uh, Judith Roberts, who plays that the prostitute that lives mm-hmm. across the hall from Henry, is uh, Joaquin Phoenix's mom in You Were Never Really Here. I don't know if you guys saw that movie. 
Yes. Oh, I haven't uh, seen that yet. The, no. That's, the good, that's great. Movie. Fabulous movie. Really, really movie. dark. Uh, but, I mean, it blew my mind because she is super sexy in this movie, right? And she's, you know, not in <laughs> in this movie that, you know, 40, 50 years later. But right. it, happens, it happens to the best of us. I mean, you should have sure seen me when I was like at 21 <laughs> <laughs> so i think this movie really shows i mean this is you know you talk about great first features mm. as weird as eraserhead is i think it's undeniable that it's it's a great first feature for a filmmaker is it not oh yeah yeah, I mean, because one of the things we talk about on our show is using film as a as a as an artistic medium, right? And you know that that's something that I think is a little a little more difficult to do. You know, it, it's one thing to tell a story on a film, and even that's difficult. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like you just you know point a camera at something, but to have the wherewithal and the concepts to put this artistic vision down without really having uh, you know years of technical skill sure right that is a it's a, that's an incredible accomplishment well yeah cuz he he was originally like his I watched his shorts before this like he was an animator and did yeah. these like weird experimental abstract pieces which were unique but also very watchable i suppose yeah i mean they're short so yeah why not two minutes of sitting through yeah you you can get you can get weird in a short it's fine that's right so here's (laughs) i started my thing with eraserhead is this is that i am so on board with the first half of the movie okay and it's you know it's five stars it's perfect it's a masterpiece and then the mutant baby comes and while I'm I'm still entertained and kind of hypnotized, mm-hmm. it's it goes a little too off the rails for me at that sure. point, and loses you know a star or so. What do you what are you guys thoughts on that? Like, do you do, is there a half of the film that you prefer over one? Because I I, I think it's to me it's obvious that there's like two very different well, kind yeah. of. Uh, diametrically opposed halves of this movie. Well, he yeah. uh, he does a, like a Dan. I use this. A, it, I've been using this example a lot because it's perfect. The uh, Robert Downey Senior movie. Uh, he has passed away, by the way. Yeah. Robert Downey Senior movie, uh, Greaser's Palace. We talked about on the show. And there's a scene where this guy is like, it's a great like tracking shot, and uh, this guy is like doing ma- a magic trick, and he's like, "Is this your card?" And then yeah. he'll like walk away and he'll go, is this your card? And it goes on for like 10 fucking minutes. Right. <laughs> and there's a, there's a, something about an artwork or a music piece or film or whatever, uh, where it just, it's just fucking relentless. And like, there's that, uh, there's a scene in Eraserhead where Henry's wife uh, is down at the, it goes, uh, she's leaving. She's like, I need to get out of here. I'm going to mom's house. And then uh, she walks over to the bed and like kind of kneels down and just starts kind of tugging on the bed. Yeah. Right. And uh, typically it'd be like tugging on the bed. Okay. You figure out why she's tugging, what she's doing. In this movie, you're like, is she like trying to annoy him? Is she fucking the bed? What's (laughs) happening? 
and and she does it and it just lasts and lasts like it's like way longer yeah. yeah way longer than it needs to and then you find out she's pulling out a suitcase from under the bed which i thought was really neat because it showed that he just wasn't isn't trying to make a movie just to like do weird shit right you know like here's a weird thing that no one's seen yeah. before that'll confuse people she was actually pulling out uh, trying to pull a suitcase out from under the bed, but if he did, way overdid it, you know, right. and it's uh, but it worked, you know, and it's like uh, to me uh, that all those sort of little art techniques that he uses to uh, disorient, yeah, uh, and but do it in a natural way, you know. It's right. uh, you know it never it the movie. I would say with the exception of the eraser manufacturing scene and the opening with the God what Prometheus character, I guess, <laughs> uh, pulling the levers, mm -hmm. those two scenes seem uh, a little too obvious to me. Mm. And uh, I don't think they work as much. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, maybe those things were put in there uh, to, you know, make the script a little more readable. Yeah, I think I think I don't know. This is the doctor performing the abortion because the way it goes, the guy, pull, the guy pulling the levers. Yeah, because uh, really, if, if you it, we, we walk through that sequence again, you know, Henry's uh, his he's tilted. You know, everything's weird. Then you go through that uh, that model you're talking about. To me, that yeah. is uh, like a, the the canal, the sure the, birth right? canal. Birth yep. canal. Um, then you see Prometheus, you know, doing some stuff, and then the baby like falls out into that thing of water. Huh. Well, yeah, I... I'm I'm done. No. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that doesn't. Yeah, Dan, I mean, Dan like nailed the... it. You know, they, there is Dan, Danny open. talks. Danny talks in his essay about like all the sexual imagery, and and there is like mm. sexual imagery in this, but it, it's Does not. It it's sexual. not for. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not for titillation. Hello, yeah. it's fucking gross. But yeah, I, I mean, it. You know, there is so much uh, imagery about childbirth and yeah, you know right. I, I think you know i'm not going to argue with anyone that says you know this movie's about abortion no fuck, I, it, and my, i'm it, not going to argue with anybody who says i'm crazy because right what the fuck it, it's eraserhead yeah exactly but i mean it's, it's, it's like, undeniable it's like, guys you're arguing do you realize you're arguing about eraserhead what are we arguing about exactly yeah. uh but like it's undeniable it something about birthing whatever children something whatever yeah and i you know i again i think that's lynch's genius and you know i'm so kind of flip floppy on the art auteur uh, theory yeah, yeah. and sometimes i'm like well yeah obviously this person's an auteur when i hear the word auteur i always think david lynch but then i start thinking like really thinking about his movies and and like you watch eraserhead and bradley you had mentioned this before that I, I don't know if, I mean, this is like, it, it's just, it is obviously a singular vision, right. but it, but it's, it's a man just taking his scrambled thoughts and 
keeping them scrambled, but visualizing them somehow for right. other people to see. And I don't think that's an auteur thing. I think yeah, I think yeah. that's just that's a very smart man being able to uh, visualize that shit for other people to enjoy. Yeah. Well, I think he's a st- he's a storyteller, yeah. and he really really enjoys telling stories. And uh, like I'll I catch myself sometimes because I I I don't mind telling. A story and including you know unpleasant graphic things sometimes and then like uh, yeah and then on occasion i'll be like oh fuck i'm really freaking these people out (laughs) you know i need to pull i need to pull back a little bit but uh lynch uh, there's this uh it's the 2001 uh documentary the one that's on the criterion channel oh Uh, the art is that art life no the art life came came well, that's very late. You know, that's maybe a few okay. years old. But it's the one that was, uh, it's Eraserhead Stories. It's called Eraserhead Stories. Oh, okay. That's one. That's the one I didn't watch. Yeah, actually. it's actually a, a really beautifully shot, just a black and white, simple thing. And he's uh, he is on with uh, Coulson and uh, on the phone a lot with her. With, uh, sure. uh, she played the, uh, the gal played the log lady. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so uh, she gets on. And he's like, "Hey, what's up, Gathy?" Tell stories, <laughs> and uh, it's it's actually really engrossing. It's I would highly recommend if you only watch one documentary associated with Racerhead, I'd watch that one. Oh, cool! Yeah, definitely. And because um, they really get into the vibe of you know what it was like living, like uh, uh, David Lynch has said. Uh, that he wants to go, he wants to go back and live in this world, and uh, he he said he loved living in this. He goes, I love living in this world, <laughs> you know. And it lasted from, uh, and this is where Danny Perry uh, messed up a little bit. Right. Uh, he thought it was a, a one year production. It was like actually, over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a uh, seventy one through seventy six, yep. and there was uh, there were a couple of breaks in there, but. In this documentary, Lynch tells this story, and it, it it's like I wanted to share it on Twitter, but I only got two minutes, 20 seconds, and the story lasts like six minutes. But he's talking about how he wanted to investigate uh, the insides of a cat. Uh, so, oh, yeah. yeah, so he can model, so he can model the Eraserhead baby. Right. And, and he's like, so I called up the veterinarian, and he thought I was weird, and uh, and then he called me 10, 10 minutes later and everything was, uh, everything serendipitous with him. You know, right. it's all, yeah, all, really. all fate based, you know, he's like, uh, and this person showed up to the set and they were perfect and I couldn't believe it. You know, the first time I met him and it's like the, all these things keep happening. So, uh, his idea of the vet having a cat die 10 minutes after he called, uh, he got super excited <laughs> He got the cat. He put it in formaldehyde, and then he tried to get the cat out of the formaldehyde. And he's like, "And the cat got rigor mortis." And trying to pull this cat, and he was smiling that when he's telling the story. And then he said, "And then I cut the cat open, and uh, and its insides were glorious. It was like a Fellini. <laughs> it was like a Fellini movie." I think he, you know, David Lynch. Really, truly, if you look at his what he's done throughout the years, ever since you know his his shorts and working 
very hard and spending a lot of time on those shorts. Uh, the grandmother, he and uh, Alan Splett uh, worked on this, he said, for 63 days yeah. straight, nine hours a day. They worked mm. on the sound for the grandmother. Yeah. This isn't even a racer. Yeah, it's just the sound. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and he said it was it was the funnest time he he it was funnest time he ever had. But if you look at like uh, uh, when he is in between movies, he's constantly working. I mean, he did all that mm. weird internet shit. He did the fucking rabbit shorts. Yeah. Um, you know, and then he's constantly the David Lynch coffee. Yeah, and he's constantly <laughs> painting as well. Uh, so he's never like doing the typical director thing where you make a movie and everybody tells you you're brilliant, wonderful, and then you make another movie like a Heaven's Gate, you know, and it's shitty and you never make another movie or you, you know, wait for 30 years and become an alcoholic and then have a great, a big resurgence, <laughs> you know, and everybody says he's back. And then the movie you make after that is shitty. So Lynch is almost in permanent Lynch mode. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he just never, ever stops. What's crazy to me is, and we're going to move on, on to our pairings here in a second, but what's crazy to me is that Mel Brooks saw Eraserhead and he's like, this man's a genius. <laughs> I want him to tell this like very human, very normal story of Elephant Man, a movie yeah. which I, I still haven't seen yet, but. Oh uh, my God, I, wait, I, I know, stop. I, Stop. Stop talking. Uh, this is an uh, elephant man actually uh, trades places with Blue Velvet as my favorite movie. I, oh, really? I, yeah, I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, shit. It's, a, it's incredible. Yeah. And it's not a, it's not like a weirdo thing. Right. It's a very specific narrative and it's very emotional and it's yeah. super well acted. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful movie. Sorry, you upset Dan very much. No, this no. Movie, Dan, Dan, I want. I'm not going to make Dan do it. I'm not going to make Dan do it, but he will. There's a part in Elephant Man where he'll talk about it and he'll start crying, not like bawling, but I can tell no... he he just. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm stopping, Dan. I'm okay. stopping. But it really is. There's uh, there are parts of it that are just so so moving. It, sure. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. You gotta watch it, Dan. Sorry. So sorry for but, chastising you. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean that that is good egging on. I really need to see this movie. I understand we could dedicate hours upon hours upon hours to this one single film. Are there any other final thoughts you want to squeeze in before we move on to the second half of the show? You know, I think no uh, knowing that this movie, David Lynch, and uh, I think Splat. And uh, some other folks, there's an 18-acre uh, in Beverly Hills, uh, an 18-acre, basically a plot of land where they had this really old house on it. Uh, okay. and, and Lynch lived in this place for, for years. Oh, and he, yeah, made, okay. he made no money. He had a paper route. Yeah. He would do odd jobs to get food. So he'd like uh, repair a roof just so he can get like hamburgers and <laughs> and and French fries, and then Coulson, who's a log lady, she she worked on the set, and she did lighting. Boom, uh, she was married to Jack Nance very early on. Yeah, as his first wife, and she uh, 
Uh, she would do his hair. Uh, she would make everybody grilled cheese. But it was this really dark space. And they basically lived in it. And they did. They would spend days sometimes making like weird paper mache shit just mm. to like get an effect perfect. Sure. Uh, they were scrounging light bulbs out of trash cans, you know, so they can have old lights in the movie. So yeah. it's just uh, just knowing the experience that went into making the film, yeah. you know, I think might help people to appreciate it a little bit more. You know, and really watch it and see things like the, the I watched it again, Dan, uh, with, uh, trying to figure out how they did the fucking baby puppet, uh, you know, and I was like, I was like, OK, I'm going to watch it this time and I'm going to notice that the <laughs> that the table that the baby's on is boxed out. Yeah, there's like a cutout of something. Yeah. Right. And I looked at it and the table is open and you can see this uh, the side rail of the wall. And it's completely open. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I still don't know how they do this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's, 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 it's brilliant, but they just, uh, uh, recognize the artistry in it and you might appreciate a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, that's one thing, you know, you sit, sit and watch this for the first time or the millionth time, but like, just appreciate exactly the craft, not, not just like the, you know, I, I think, there's always that debate between are you an artist or are you a craftsman uh, mm, for yeah. people who create things? And I, I love that debate. And again, nobody's wrong if you call yourself an artist as opposed to a craftsman or the other way around, whatever. But the actual craft of making the shit for this movie, like I said, the miniatures, the models, the puppets, I mean, they didn't have any, you're, you can't tell me that's an animatronic. They didn't have the money to make an animatronic. <laughs> right. Like that is a killer fucking puppet. And somebody's actually like, they, you know, they filled up balloons full of whatever fucking pudding or, and like, I don't know. It's just yeah. the creativity that went into making this movie. And, and like you said before, Brad, like there was this kind of troop of, of not only actors, but like the crew It was you know, they're just this family that all have this kind of uh, here. Here's the one thing, one note that I wanted to bring up real quick is that to be in a movie like this, this sort of like experimental thing, you have to be game cast and crew. You have to be game and you have to be supportive and, and kind of fall into whatever this leader, the director or whoever is trying to get made and so, I mean, Lynch, yes, genius, but everybody else, I think, deserves a huge round of applause because they fell in line with this. They were game for whatever weirdo shit we were going to do. And while you're in the process of making something, whether it's a painting or even a song, if you're tracking like instrument by instrument or especially making a movie, you're shooting shit out of sequence. You don't know what it's going to look like on film. And so these people are just like, we're going to go out and we're going to give this our all mm. And hopefully something cool comes of it, and you end up with Eraserhead. I think that's just uh, yeah. mind. Oh yeah, and people gave five years of their life basically. Like uh, Catherine Coulson would. And, am I getting her first name right? Is it Kathy or Catherine? Uh, I just want to make sure I'm not I'm not wildly uh, fucking something up. But any <laughs> anyways, uh, uh, the uh, she was a waitress, and she actually yes, it's Catherine. Uh, she actually uh, would uh, give a good portion of her 
dollars. Right. You know, well, to, yeah, that's to... the other thing. People are, are kicking in what little money they have to to this director because they all believed in this vision. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a it's a trip, you know, that they did. It's like what 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 was the deal? Like I can't get I can't get anybody to agree to do anything with me. <laughs> I tried to make a record, nobody would fucking play music with me, so I I ended up having to play everything myself. So it's like Prince. Fuck, man. Suddenly you are Prince. That's me. I'm Prince. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I said, we could talk about this forever, but let's move on. So I like to ask my guests, was there some sort of like theme or something? And it's hard with Eraserhead, like we were talking about before, Dan, but Mm. is there something that you uh, kind of clung on to to find something to double feature with Eraserhead? Well, uh, I, I looked at two things. Uh, one, I looked at a filmmaker who I feel parallel parallels with David mm. Lynch in a lot sure. of ways. And then uh, the uh, the second movie uh, I picked was thematic, and I, I'll I'll get into that when we okay get there. yeah sure. What what about you, Bradley? Actually, I'm, I had like nine fucking movies before we started, and I forgot it was only two, and I just <laughs> I, I just dropped one out. And then added Wait. another one. So I there's no me- no method to the madness. No method. Mine, like I said before, I kind of went basic bitch with this because like, what the <laughs> fuck do you double? I mean, I don't know if it would be smart to, you know, if you're running a theater, I don't know if it'd be smart to run a double feature with Eraserhead anyways. Mm. I did. I did uh, uh, Backyard uh, Movies. Uh, a few days ago, I did Jaws followed by Eraserhead. Not- I love that. Well, okay. So like watching it last night again, I thought too, and I, I try for my, my double feature things to to go for movies that are lesser known, Yeah. And but two movies that are like widely known that I think would kind of pair brilliantly with Eraserhead is one, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. That uh, yep. Iranian vampire movie won the black and white photography, but also kind of that industrial atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know that yep. that they roam around. And then the other one, <laughs> I think, would kind of be uh, a great night. Would be "It's a Wonderful Life." <laughs> Actually, yeah, I think that's a great one. Yeah, perfect. Uh, and th- the only reason I I wouldn't include that is because "It's a Wonderful Life" is one of the hundred movies in the first cult movies book, so we're actually going to get to it. Oh, but nice. I think I you know what a what a crazy double feature that would be. But uh, I digress. Let's get into this. Uh, let's start with Dan. Let's hear your first uh, pairing recommendation. So uh, my first pairing, uh, like I said, is because I see a lot of parallels between these two filmmakers. So they both uh, have a background uh, going to art schools. Uh, they worked in shorts, uh, a lot of them animation and stuff. And both their first features are fucking weird and confusing <laughs> and brilliant and this is uh peter greenaway's the falls from 1980 oh great yeah. before the violent unknown event polly Falori did indifferent bird imitations she had impersonated a nightingale for 27 nights in a play called the little green finches and she played the part of a budgerigar with clipped wings in a film called the reluctant singer Her act had been accompanied by random fluttering gestures and the habit of singing through an almost closed mouth. When she employed an agent, 
He would always be telling her to open her mouth and freeze her arms. The Falls. I I don't know this one. Okay. Uh, if you've got, you need <laughs> to have a ready. little bit of. You need to have a have your meal plan set up. Yeah. Before you watch it. <laughs> so this is like a mock documentary. Okay, chronicling the the life of ninety six different people who survived the violent unknown event. Okay. Now. You don't know what the violent unknown event is, okay? But it okay. killed like 19 million people, right? What happened to the survivors is they all became mutated in some way. They all became either bird-like or obsessed with birds or aviation, and they all started to speak a different language. None of the languages are real. It's not like they all of a sudden started to speak Spanish. Sure. It's like they just... and. The thing about this movie, it's it, it's three hours long, and each vignette, you know, might last uh, a couple minutes or you know six, seven minutes. I don't know, but it's all just played really straight. Like there's a narrator, and there's uh, documents, and uh, it, a lot of it is just pictures, pictures of places and and people and 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 drawings and things. It's one of those movies that it's it's very difficult to get through in one sitting sure um the only time i've gotten through it in one sitting is when i've become sort of hypnotized by it because the, the music yeah. is also beautiful that if you know peter greenaway um his films always have uh great scores especially zed and, and two knots um oh, a fantastic score i love that yes yeah so and this, this this score is very similar but you know we were talking before about um you know sometimes uh, a movie can be sort of hypnotic and this is definitely one of those those movies that will put me in into another place and and will like activate uh my oh, own yeah, imagination yeah. right sure yeah, yeah and so sometimes i'll find myself watching like uh we recently covered Bell belladonna of sadness and at several points in watching that movie i just found myself like spacing out yes and like, but not like dead spacing out. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Like, I just watched it for the first time. I know exactly what you're yes. talking about. So all of a sudden, like that that creative part in your brain starts to activate, right. and you start like you're you know, engaged. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. The falls is it, there used to be a great stream of it on YouTube, um, but it's not there anymore. It's hard to find, hard to watch. You could watch 15 minutes of it, and you can kind of get it. But yeah, kind I, of, I was kind of funny in a way. It is. It's yeah. it's really funny, but it is. It's like I said. It's three hours long, and it's weird. Oh man, I'm into it. And I mean, <laughs> the, the, the hunt begins. That that kind of uh, lends itself to the definition of a cult movie when you have to kind of hunt something down anyway. Yeah. So it's perfect. Uh, okay, the falls, Bradley. Let's hear your first recommendation. Oh, my first recommendation. Okay, it's a. It was a last minute recommendation. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Murnau's uh, Nosferatu. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, from 1922, and the and the reason why it came to mind was I would gently mess with uh, my daughter as far as movies uh, go. <laughs> she, uh, I would, I slowly introduced her to to weird movies. You know, okay. I don't think I ever played Eraserhead for <laughs> Eraserhead's like one of those movies where it's kind of personal. You know, it's it, it's mm. weird. Yeah, I totally agree with yeah. that. Yeah, but I remember playing Nosferatu for her, and then uh, she was maybe 12, 13 at the time, 
and uh, telling her that real vampires lived back then. <laughs> and this was an actual, it was an actual real vampire. It was one of the last living vampires. And they got him to participate in the film. He's very serious about it. And uh, for a while, she she believed it was an actual vampire. <laughs> well, Max Shrek, that guy was a fucking weirdo. Oh yeah, yeah. But it's uh, but if you and also the filming and uh, film style of it, and it does feel a little bit out of time, sure. as mm-hmm. as well yeah. like this one, and it does sort of feel Bardo-ish, you know, like it's yeah. a in in an in between world, but. Uh, the reason why it came to mind was if I would have shown Eraser head to her, I I would have said that that was a real uh, a, de- <laughs> a real deformed creature, <laughs> and it was uh, that the movie was banned, you know, for many years, and we we got a copy of it because they actually like uh, killed this uh, little creature on on screen. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm glad I didn't do that because that probably would have well, permanently fucked her up. The fact that she well, th- thought Nosferatu was a real vampire, eh, she's okay. She's okay now. Well, I mean, just, <laughs> same thing with, with Eraserhead. Imagine sitting through that for the first time in 1977 thinking, what the fuck is that? 1920, what is it, 22? Right. Yeah. I think, like, watching this, I mean, how fucking scary would that be? Right. Oh yeah. And it, it, it's, yeah. it still is. Max Shrek is terrifying, and, and I, I love the uh, what's the Willem Dafoe? Oh, Shadow um, of the Vampire. Shadow of Vampire. You know, I I, I love that movie. That too. Yeah. Like, that was another uh, the director of Begotten. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. You go. Yeah. So that's a uh, that's one that somebody, not me, might have thought about pairing with this movie. <laughs> Um, okay, so my my basic bitch idea for this first one was just uh, I'm gonna sit somebody down for a double feature of mind fuck movies. I would never actually make somebody do that because I think that's a horrible idea. Because I mean, we've all seen mind fuck movies, and we don't want to watch more than one at a time. So, anyways, I'm recommending the movie called Toad Road. Okay, from 2012, written and directed by Jason Banker. Yep, she seriously kidding. wants to get knocked out. I'm not fucking kidding. As hard as you can. Are you recording? Right here. Alright, this is James getting knocked out. My life is falling apart around me. I'm losing everything. I wake up every day and I feel like shit. It just doesn't seem worth it anymore. Why me? Toad Road. It's like the local high school urban legend. I just kind of wanted to drop some acid and just see what happened. <sighs> now, the the kind of mythology, real-life mythology surrounding this movie is that, well, let me say this. It, it's about this kind of college girl who uh, lives in York, Pennsylvania, and it's sort of this uh, kind of portrait of these bored teens. Think, think like um, kids, basically, but rural Pennsylvania. Okay. So these kids are like spending their time getting high and getting drunk and acting like fools every weekend, every night, whatever. And so uh, one of the guys, James, starts dating this girl, Sarah. She's kind of this virginal, you know, hasn't experienced anything type of girl. She's introduced to this world she's never experienced, and she gets into the drug. She gets into the drinking. She loves the party atmosphere, which then all kind of leads to this obsession with the urban legend of Toad Road, which is a real urban legend uh, about the seven gates of hell. And so Toad Road is like this, this kind of 
yeah, this this road in Pennsylvania or wherever, really, that you walk down that and you go through the seven these seven gates and it leads you to hell. It's a really fucking weird mind fuck of a movie. But the really kind of scary thing about this is that this girl who portrays this kind of virginal girl, her name is Sarah in the movie Sarah in real life. Before the, the film was even released, she actually died of a drug overdose and like she got into this sort of party lifestyle mm. in the movie. And so, that you know, that's kind of the mythology that hangs on to this movie uh, itself. But it, you know, it's like Eraserhead. You could call it a horror movie. Yeah, she died in 2012. Yeah, it be it was after the movie wrapped, but before it's released. But you know, it's it's a really strange movie, and it's for me for some reason it's hypnotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was never like this party kid. I never did drugs. Uh, I, you know, I didn't drink until I was 21. Like it's a totally different life than I had, which is maybe why I'm kind of drawn to, or like hypnotized by watching this almost looks like documentary, uh, documentary film yeah. of these kids kind of just letting loose and going wild and doing stupid shit. And then all of a sudden we're thrown into this urban legend of going to hell and it's really strange, but I totally recommend it. Wow. Okay. Well, there's a uh, Pennsylvania you know that's uh, uh lynch's right uh, that's oh, that's he, where he grew up yeah oh yeah okay yeah, so, then, so that's that, why he said that that is what in his interviews he'd be like i always go back to pennsylvania right you know? yeah and uh that's really what uh mostly impacted him dan and oh, i shit, talk they're... a lot about uh traumatic events that happened to us during our formative years yeah yeah <laughs> okay dan let's hear your second recommendation so for the second one, I went uh, thematic, drawing back to that idea of manifestations, right? Uh, so this was 1996's Tokyo Fist from Shinya Sukamoto. Yeah. Again, it, it's it's a very strange movie. There's people inserting metal in their body, and there's people who get obsessed with boxing and quit their jobs. And it, it, it's a, it's a strange, like very kinetic, like most of Tsukamoto stuff. Uh, this is the Iron Man guy, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. But the thing that connects it for me is there's a thread that goes through the film. Uh, the film is about these, these two guys who are childhood friends and then they, they meet again uh, as adults and they're meeting kind of, propels all of this kind of propels their lives to fall apart okay but the the thing that is in the background is when they were young a friend of theirs died there there was this incident where she fell onto a metal spike and she was killed right and these men carry the regret and the pain of that event through their lives as as they grow up i think they kind of repress it but when they come back together, different elements of that background start to manifest into their real life. Mm. Okay. One of the amazing things uh, for me is like when, when I was uh, thinking about this movie again, I went and, and read the synopsis, the backstory of the, of when they were children isn't even mentioned in the plot summary. Oh, interesting. So it's, that seems like a major plot point. It, it should be, but I think it's over. If you if you watch the movie, I think that is overshadowed by all of the weirdness and Weird yeah. and you know kinetic <laughs> camera work and there's sure. a lot of boxing and action, and I don't think it's a movie that people really 
look to to analyze. And I think very much like Eraserhead, it's full of symbolism, but it's not it's not overt symbolism. You know, a lot of times in you know when we talk about symbolism, it'll be like someone's doing a Jesus Christ pose, right? Or sure, the main yeah. character's alone in a field, and it's it's their loneliness. You know, right. isn't that yeah. where these are? Um, the symbols are more forward, and the symbols are more active uh rather than being kind of in the background uh sure so it's it's symbols that are in real life seemingly rather yeah. than just being like an idea that's it's evaporating right. and i think that that realism of the symbols creates that weird atmosphere that sometimes people aren't fully able to process because they're they're sure. looking for more of a straightforward narrative film so that's yeah. that's kind of the the idea behind those that pair you know i i need to go back to so i've only seen uh well i think maybe i've seen is it bullet man too he yep he did bullet man i, I watched those and i mean i was like what again what the fuck is this <laughs> yes. uh but i know so many people love those movies and uh hearing this movie that seems not totally unlike those but maybe a little oh, more straightforward. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I feel like I really need to go back and like re revisit this guy's work. Oh yeah. Fuck, and fuck Dan, you just uh, made me remember <laughs> what my other movie was. <laughs> and, uh, and I had, I literally have like four movies up, you know, I was going to do the mutant angle. I was going to do like the weird, like haunted house angle. Yep. Uh, going to do just the straightforward, like, fucked up baby mm -hmm. you know angle <laughs> uh but uh yeah i got it so sorry about right. that. but yeah anthony definitely <laughs> thank um... you dan for triggering <laughs> me it's uh, this happens often where there uh these trigger pauses will, will happen it's important sukamoto is definitely most well known for tetsuo the iron man and um and rightly so it it, it just like eraserhead it is a it is a marvel uh, of you know independent filmmaking but yeah. Tokyo Fist, Snake of June, uh, Kotoko, but oh, Vital. Snake of June. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the Vital. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, but basically, kind of like you, you're you're thinking maybe a lot of his other movies are more straightforward, but they they very much like uh, David Lynch. Um, you know, they all have this this flavor and kind of weirdness to them, and uh, sure, yeah amazing i think i mean obviously those are i think we can all agree those are kind of our favorite types of movies or the movies that we gravitate towards yeah. for some reason and yeah man that's brilliant i didn't realize this is the same guy that did snake of june i fucking love that movie ah great okay so okay yeah i definitely need to go back and revisit this stuff yep moving on bradley all right let's hear it what what is this <laughs> okay, uh, light bulb is, that just it, came it's funny because this was the first movie i thought of when you said this and then i forgot about it you know with all the <laughs> frenzy of shit that, that i would been thinking about you know prior to the show but dan what it's a it's a it's another shinya sukamoto oh okay what is it yeah and it's uh it is what i remember when everybody was talking about their favorite movies of the 2010s or the 2000s or whatever mm -hmm. uh this is the one that with much uh, thought behind it, I decided this was my favorite movie for okay. that period. And I don't like a lot of new movies. <laughs> I don't know why. Same. But I'm with you. I'm yeah. With you. And uh, oftentimes they're too derivative, I think. You know, that fucks with me a little bit. 
But anyways, uh, Katoko mm. is about a gal who's got, I, I think, men mental illness, maybe schizophrenia. And uh, she has a newborn baby. So there's your baby mm. tie-in. Well, yep. There you go. <laughs> but it is uh, done in such a way where you're absolutely inside this world oh, and uh, and it's a really beautiful beautifully done and really emotionally acted uh it's actually done by uh the the lead role is a an singer her name is coco and hmm. she hasn't uh done a lot of films but she uh wrote the film she wrote this one yeah she wrote the film with uh it was her well it was her original story okay and then uh Sukumoto wrote the screenplay but she start uh started in it wow. but her that emotional rawness you know that henry has yeah uh, she has and it's probably right. it's one of the like we, we just uh we're gonna talk about let's scare uh jessica to death yeah, you know movies like that and possession. You know mm -hmm. these sort of really raw female roles. You know sure. this okay. is uh, definitely up there. It's a body horror as well. Not mm. yet. And okay. uh, yeah, so a lot of uh, uh, Sukumoto's movies deal with body horror. But so you got your baby, you got your body horror, you got your raw emotions, and you got your slipperiness as well as uh, as far as the narrative goes sure. so there you go and also it's an excuse to get people to watch kotoko it's uh, spelled k-o-t-o-k-o -O -O. came out in 2011 and it's from uh the masters uh shinya sukumoto there right, you go well, i'm gonna have to dedicate <clears throat> a night to sukumoto movies or yeah. a fucking week to sukumoto movies <laughs> yeah. now this is brilliant i love it okay uh, for my final one, I, again, staying basic bitch, I went Mutant Baby, <laughs> and uh, you can guess maybe which filmmaker I'm talking about. His name is Larry Cohen, yes. but which one am I going to go with? Uh, I think the first It's Alive, brilliant film, but it's a little too well-known and, and beloved. The second one, also good. Oh, now, no. I, I, ju I, ju I just got... I just got this box set from uh, Shout Factory, and I just watched them all. Oh, nice. Uh, the second one, also good, but <laughs> I'm going with It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, because... Oh. If they do come back here, we're here to see that they find nothing left alive. Ah! <laughs> Okay, because and here's here's the funny thing. It's Alive 3 Island of the Alive is my least favorite of the It's Alive trilogy. <laughs> okay. Go figure. I still like it though. These I, I these moves are fun. They're yeah. silly fun. I'm going with It's Alive 3 paired with Eraserhead simply for the fact, well, one, you know, monster baby. Yep. But two, I think Island of the Alive, as opposed to the uh, previous two incarnations of It's Alive, really kind of shows 
fatherhood and like the stresses and how crazy you feel when you're a dad or a parent, yeah. you know, for that matter. And uh, Michael Moriarty, of course, I mean, the, the guy's <laughs> brilliant, um, especially in everything he did with Larry. You know, he, gosh, just like most of his performances, I mean, he goes from like zero to 11 and like everything in between. People talk about Nick Cage. He's the greatest working actor. And I, I'm not going to argue with that because the man is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that that shot in Face Off where he like goes through 70 different emotions uh <laughs> nick cage does michael moriarty does that in, in every oh, single yeah. movie we in. uh we gushed over uh moriarty uh when we uh when we talked about uh larry cohen uh, didn't we do yeah, that yeah. with uh patrick on the show yeah patrick Corbett. yeah yeah uh, and uh yeah moriarty we it was like uh we basically just all jerked off to moriarty for the whole, <laughs> whole show yeah i mean so you know, this for anyone, I mean, it, it's in the title, but it's it, essentially the movie opens with, <laughs> again, I was like, uh, Bobby, do you want to watch this movie with me? She's like, oh, sure, I'll watch it. And the movie opens with a woman giving birth to a mutant baby in the back of the cab. And then like the security guard that's helping her, he's like, it's one of them. <laughs> and like, you know, it rips out. And of course, the baby attacks the guy. And she's like, OK, bye. She got up and like goes to the bedroom. Anyway, so then we cut to like this courtroom scene. You're like, what the fuck is this? And Michael Moriarty's in there. And this judge, it comes down to this judge has like <laughs> sentenced these babies, all the mutant babies to go to like this secluded island <laughs> off the coast of Florida. OK. Oh, God. And that sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah, well, fucking just send him to Florida, whatever. So then, like, the doctor who was kind of in charge of, like, ex- not experimenting, uh, caring for these babies and, like, studying them, gets a team together, including Moriarty, and then, uh, who is it? It was James Dixon, who's in, you know, he's like, he looks like Larry Cohen, but he's in all Larry's movies. They go to the island to, like, free these kids, and the fucking kids kill everybody, and then they get back to... The the mutant babies commandeer a yacht, <laughs> and they sail back to Florida, and they're and they're led by Moriarty's mutant baby called Adam, who is oh, looking Lord. for his birth mother, played by the wonderful Karen Black. Oh wow! Rest her soul. Come on, it's dumb as hell. I'll watch. I'll watch anything with Moriarty in it. super fun listen you're sitting through like the weirdest shit you've ever seen Mm. watching Eraserhead you need kind of this palate cleanser so you throw on It's Alive 3 Island of the Alive whatever (laughs) (laughs) that 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 might be the most fun of all the double features we talked about (laughs) yeah and just for that reason you know you're like what the fuck did I just watch and then you're like oh what the fuck am I watching and it's it's, (laughs) um, but you know it's a little more fun definitely um all right gentlemen this was so much fun uh we're gonna have to do it again i'd love to have you back on uh before we get to blue blue velvet so sweet uh if you Uh, you don't want to wait until uh 2034 when you're uh (laughs) through two books listen i timed it out if all goes according to plan i'll be done in 700 years nice Not bad. <laughs> no, it's it two hundred movies, two hundred episodes, twenty episodes at a time. Take a month off, you know. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we actually finish. Anyways, all right. Where can uh, people find you guys online? 
This is the uh, part where I asked Dan because he's uh, more sincere. Oh, yes. <laughs> so uh, you can find us. Uh, you can find me at Dan Pullen Books on Twitter. Uh, you can find Bradley. He runs our show account at 26. MFH Pod. MFH Pod. I'm like, movie. <laughs> yeah. MF- no. And uh, Bradley has also put together a very very nice website called movies from hell um and you can find you know show notes and uh little different articles and things that we post and i've been working a little bit harder lately like uh with the uh we did our uh, outer limits episode and i put links on there to all the free streams of all the outer limits episodes uh that we we talked about so yeah, and it's it's pretty. <laughs> it is. I agree. It it is pretty. Now, speaking of show notes, if my listeners, you guys can go to columbusvhughes.com for extensive show notes, links for all these guys, uh, links to the movies from hell letterbox list. You can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at Cold Movies Pod. You can follow me at AK Donnelly on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. That's one N two L's. Thank you for listening. <laughs> We're back next week with the aforementioned. Mr. Christopher Funderberg from The Pink Smoke talking the French comedy King of Hearts. I don't know if you guys have seen that. No. I just watched it for the first time. It's fucking hysterical. I cannot wait to talk to Chris. He's the best. I think he may have tweeted uh, about that before. If I recall, I don't know. Yeah. It's French. Yeah, it's French. Yeah, it's it's very Christopher Funderburg. Yeah. I'll tell you that. Very uh, Funderburgian. Uh, it's Funderburg. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, fuck lynching. It's Funderburgian. Yes. Bradley, Dan, movies from hell. Thank you again, fellas. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, this yeah, was, was a uh, yeah, real pleasure. And uh, I just wanted uh, let everybody know, like, like you really need an endorsement on your own show. But I love Cold Movies Pod. I think Dan does yeah. as well. But. It is. It's my favorite new podcast. I listen to every show, so I, I love it. And I and I picked up my copy of Danny Perry's book. So now, now I'm a I'm a full fan, Dan. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna do club. that. I yeah yeah. So anyways, get mine thanks. Internet archive. Yeah, thanks for the invite. And again, we can't wait to have you on our show. Again.